Well, good morning, faith family. Good to see you. Have you noticed that uh, everything these day and ages uh, has terms and conditions kind of embedded into things? Cell phone plans. Man, oh man, list of pages of terms and conditions. Uh, emailed some friends this morning or this week and said, you know, where are you just frustrated and surprised at all the terms and conditions that exist in this life? And one guy wrote back, cell phone apps, you know, terms and conditions. Do you accept this app using your camera and microphone? Because of course it's going to help the app function better. Do you accept those terms and conditions? You're, you're kind of just like, what am I giving away here by allowing this app to access my microphone in my pictures. Now, maybe you're not as techie and you're not into those terms and conditions. You kind of just skim through them. You check the box. You just want to use it. You want to play the game. Who cares? We all have terms and conditions, though, even for this week that has just passed. Thanksgiving is not without terms and conditions. Whose house is it going to be at? Even years? Odd years? You know, I mean, the in-laws, right? I mean, who gets to host? What food must we have? Not just what food must we have, but who is going to make that must food? Because you don't want just anybody making the sweet potato casserole. I mean, only mom can make that, right? Dad, you can handle the water. But, you know, we need the, the person that is the expert to make this deal. Fast forward just a little bit, man. We have expectations, terms and conditions for Christmas I've been here 16 years, but I guess I'm still a rookie. Uh, yeah, I, I made a suggestion about Christmas Eve, a suggestion. How about we not end Christmas Eve with silent night and candlelight, and we end with his mercy is more? I was cited. <laughs> Evangelical code, right? 639 paragraph 4, which reads... All evangelical churches on Christmas Eve must end with candlelight singing Silent Night. If, if gatherings do not comply, they do not constitute a church. I mean, it is serious stuff. Now, to, to my defense, it was going to be Silent Night and then His mercy is more. It was going to be there. It's all going to be candlelight, but no, I mean, it is just don't mess with tradition. Terms and conditions apply for Christmas Eve. If you want to thank Aaron Reed for that, she, <laughs> she defended your cause. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there will be silent night. It will be the last song on Christmas Eve. Thank you, Aaron, for talking the crazy pastor off of changing terms and conditions. My contract from the trustees say every year now. <laughs> right? Oh, man. But have you ever noticed that there are terms and conditions about being a follower of Jesus Christ? Imagine that after the holiday week that we just got through here, that you start your new job on Monday, tomorrow, and you are a contract lawyer. And your first job, right, on the first day is to review the terms and conditions of two unusual clients. The first contract that you have to review is the client of Jesus Christ with his father. It's a family business. And those of you that are in family businesses, you know they would be helped by contracts of terms and conditions because family businesses get sticky, right? 
And so Jesus Christ, you're going to read through his contract with God the Father to make sure that there's nothing in there that Jesus signs up for that he shouldn't do. The next contract that you have to review is the terms and conditions of Jesus Christ and his followers. What is there for his followers in these terms and conditions? And your boss tells you, we hope that it's just a bunch of cut and paste stuff in there. Because to be his disciple, to be his followers, well, the point's in the name. So whatever Jesus Christ signs up to do with his father, you would expect his followers to, well, if they're followers, to basically have the same contract that he has with God the Father. It would be a copy and paste job. They'd be very similar terms and conditions. So on your first day of the job, they put you in the least comfortable room possible. You sit down and you read through the contract. And the more that you read through the contract, the more you wonder if this is a test. Because you are shocked. You find out that this contract between God the Father and Jesus, and between Jesus and his followers, has the least employee protection that you have ever seen. It would seem the motto of this family business is safety second. Maybe safety sometimes. Safety third, as Hayden says, right? You are pretty sure that this contract is illegal all around the world because again and again, the contract and the heart of it comes out in these words taken from John 12, 24 through 25. John 12, 24 through 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If it dies, whoever loses his life, whoever hates it. Jesus' contract with the Father summarizes this. Go and die. I think it's really pivotal as we begin to transition from this sermon series into Christmas, born of a baby, right, in a manger, but he was born to die. And for his disciples, you're going to find out this morning, that it is a copy and paste job. Jesus says in John 12, 26, where I am, there my servant will be also. Well, where is he going? Calvary? The cross? The grave? Can you imagine how difficult it would be to be Jesus Christ's lawyer or to be his union rep? How difficult would that be? I mean, what would be an unreasonable demand when he already signed up to come and die? I wonder the shock of some of us this morning that you might be sitting here going, and that's the contract that I signed? Those are my terms and conditions? It did for Mr. Pierman. According to the Babylon Bee, this is one of my favorite sources of satire and comic relief. If you're not familiar with the Babylon Bee, you should Google it later today and read this. But in an article that ran this headline, it reads this, Man Accepting Christ Skims Terms and Conditions. <laughs> Monterey, California, local man Gary Pierman decided he was going to follow Jesus after reading the Savior's offer of abundant life and eternity in heaven. Unfortunately, Pierman uh, read the terms and conditions, quickly skimming them to get to the part where you accept Jesus into your heart. 
This whole salvation thing looks great, he said, as he flipped past page after page of Jesus telling his disciples they'd be persecuted and killed. I get all these amazing benefits, and I don't have to go up my sin, repent of any lifestyles that fly in the face of God's righteousness, or change my way of living at all. It's a good thing there's no terms of service or end of user agreements. Like if Jesus asked us to repair, to give up everything to follow him, that would have been awful, end of quote. After skimming all the passages in the New Testament that teach repentance and caution people from accepting Jesus lightly, Pierman read Romans 10.13, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A passage that looked like a spiritual accept button to him. Now that's funny, but it's painful, right? Because all of us are tempted to opt for a more domesticated version of Christianity. A, a version of the gospel that doesn't require too much of us. A, a version of the gospel that doesn't require us to lose our life, to have a life. You know, a certain amount of health and wealth and security that you're sure your lawyer will work into that contract for you because after all, you deserve those. After all you've been through, right? And you definitely want to get that escape clause in there that you can avoid the cross at all cost. But today, the aim of the sermon is this. Fire the lawyer in your head and follow the crucified Savior. Fire the lawyer in your head and follow the crucified Savior. We're going to see this argument is developed as we progress through this text. This text really just has two steps to it. This test is, is divided really easy in two points. Two points are this. What you need to know about Jesus, because he's an unexpected Messiah, and what you need to hear from Jesus, because he has an unexpected message. So the unexpected Messiah is verses 12 through 19. His unexpected message is verses 20 through 26. I don't get to see everybody out there in Palmer Hall, but I just, I'm looking around, I just want to just uh, say this. Uh, Pastor Pat has gotten to preach like all the discipleship messages for years around here because we just look to him as the expert. And I feel like this is my first time getting picked first in the kickball game at the playground. It's like, I get to do a discipleship sermon, yeah! But because of friends that have shaped me and have challenged me recently, I want to step into this with the tone that I think Jesus has. And that tone, I think, is fire the lawyer in your head and follow the crucified king. I think that's the tone. It's a pretty strong passage. But I do want to say that not everybody is here ready to just like take up their cross and follow him. And so the expectation is going to be pretty high from Christ's words today. But I do want to offer that somewhere in the sermon, I want to boil it down to you as a struggler or a sojourner or a sufferer and just say, where do I even get started? Because these terms and conditions look intense. I don't know if I'm going to do that well. But I hope to talk to you after the service if I have hurt you or offended you or I haven't met you with where you can start. Man, see me this week. Pat's preaching next week. I'm like free, you know, so, so book me, all right? But I'm saying that because... I don't want to overwhelm you, but I can't preach it then less than what it is. And the tone is pretty intense. So fire the lawyer in your head and follow the crucified king. But we do hope that through this that you'll melt to want to do that and that you'll have some baby steps to start 
even if you feel like that terms and conditions is a shock. He wants to get your attention this morning, and this is how he's going to do it. Is that okay? Can't see you out there. I hope you guys are still breathing, all right? That, 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 was, that was a tough intro. Here we go. First, the unexpected Messiah, what you need to know about him. Well, people have always had different expectations of who Jesus is, even when he walked on this earth. And in John 12, verses 12 through 19, we see this crowd is growing, and it has an expectation about this victorious Jesus. And I just want to put it to you in this way. If you think Jesus is going to come and conquer and reign as king, who wouldn't want to enter into a contract with that guy? I mean, let's get in on it early. Let's franchise this guy when he's a rookie before, you know, he's too much money later on. That's kind of the attitude that's going on in verses 12 through 19. So you're excited. He is the anticipation of the whole Old Testament. The Messiah is going to be the one that's going to overthrow the enemy. He's going to seize power. He's going to rule and reign forever. Let's align with the guy who rules and reigns forever. Look at verses 12 through 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Okay? It's clear what the crowd expected of Jesus. They are quoting Psalms 118, which we've already heard. It is celebrating Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, and the crowd is chanting, Hosanna, 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 which means give salvation now. So think of this in this way. When the president walks in and we sing, Hail to the Chief. It's kind of the attitude that's going on here. And then they are waving palm branches. Do not think Easter cantata here at our church with cute little girls waving, you know, palm branches back and forth. We have a picture of Gracie Owens doing that at six years old. Okay, this is not it. That's, that's domesticated gospel. What is going on here when they are waving these palm branches? The palm branches were symbolized on their coins from when they revolted in the Maccabean Revolt. So when Simon Maccabeus drove out the Syrian forces that were occupying Jerusalem, they remembered that occasion of kicking out the reigning government by putting on their coins these palm branches. So they are filled with excitement like we would be at a Memorial Day parade with people singing our national anthem, followed by probably the greatest song ever that we've been allowed in, right? Proud to be an American. Who doesn't tear up, right? When we gather at the cemetery singing proud to be an American. And so these forces are ready to make Jesus king, to liberate them from Rome. That's all that's tied into a passage that might be so familiar to us, we lose that cutting edge. And Jesus does not walk away from their anticipation, from their expectation. In fact, Jesus only heightens it because he goes and he fulfills a prophecy. A prophecy fulfilled from the book of Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 literally says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. What do you need to know about this Jesus? 
He is the one who can offer you life because he is the climactic fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies. By fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, Jesus is saying, I am your Messiah. I am your King. And he does this at the most explosive time imaginable, at Passover in Jerusalem, when Rome occupies the nation. It is the nightmare of the Pharisees and the chief priests that Christ would come and want to cause trouble with the Romans. Look at verses 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that, they, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world? I mean, that sounds monumental. That sounds triumphant. That sounds victorious. There's going to be some perks in signing a contract with Jesus Christ. I mean, he's the king of the whole world. The whole world is going after him. But the words that we need to hear in response to Jesus Christ, hearing the world has come to him, look at verse 20. Look at John 12, 20. Now, among those who went up to the feast to worship were the Greeks. Don't you just love this literary genius? The whole world is coming after him. Verse 20, the whole world shows up. Cue the Gentiles, right? Verse 21, they ask to see Jesus. When word gets to Jesus, the world has come to him. He says in John 12, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When the Gentiles who represent the world come to him, Jesus says, now is the hour the Son of Man is glorified. If you've been tracking with us through John, we've heard about this hour all the way back in John 2, 4. When Mary wants him to turn and to save the day at the wedding, he says, you know, Mom, my hour has not come. Fast forward to John chapter 7, verse 6. He says, my time has not yet come. And over and over and over again, we're being led to ask, when's it going to be? When's it going to happen? Are we there yet? And after 11 chapters of detailed, accurate, historic record, Jesus finally announces his hour has come. Now, I wonder for you, what would you expect next? You remember being in high school where you had to cover up what happens next and you had to kind of imagine with your, you know, you cover up with your thumb and his hour had come. What happens next? We know what the crowds thought would happen next. There's no doubt they anticipated the arrival of his hour meant that Christ would be victorious, would rule and reign and kick the Romans out. But Jesus doesn't point to his human display of power as his glory on earth? No, instead he points to his death. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Glory. What do you glory in? It's a Christian word, but I want to break it down for you if you're our guest. Glory is just that display case at your house. Something that you're so proud of. Could be a wedding picture. Day that you want to remember that you just glory in and how special that day was. Could be a diploma. Could be a trophy. Could be a mounted animal. 
Could be a soccer ball. Could be how much money you have in your savings account. What you glory in is what you want to display and what Christ is most proud of. What he says you're going to see who he is and all that he's about is his death. That shocked the disciples. His hour was not what they were expecting. Jesus compared his life to a seed, and this seed must die to bear fruit. Can you imagine all the varieties of seed that exist out there? And what if they all like got into a union together and had a strike? We're not going to die. We're not going to die. And you're like, I can't have bananas. I can't have any of this bread because... We just want to be displayed in the display cases of all these varieties of seed. The only way we get bread is if that seed goes into the ground and dies and produces a harvest. And Christ compares his life to that way, that he must come and that he must die. But if you were Jesus' lawyer, you would not want him to do that, would you? You'd want to talk him out of it. Wouldn't you say, don't do this? You don't deserve this. Jesus, you didn't do anything wrong, ever. You're too valuable. You're the Messiah, right? I mean, your pathway to glory does not need to go through death. Can't you just, you know, sidestep the shame, the ridicule, the embarrassment, and just have this resurrection life? Not Jesus. Not Jesus. According to Jesus' own words, just look across the page, chapter 12, verses 32 through 33. Jesus' own words about why he came. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What do you need to know about this Jesus? It was as easily missed back then as it is as easily missed today. The one who brings you life brings you life through his death, right? His death is not a tragedy. His death is a triumph. Don't look at it as, oh, the Romans are plotting to take his life. No, Jesus came to give his life. That's the irony. They want to take it, and he's saying, I'm here to give it. Only Jesus could take the weakness of the cross and make it the power of salvation to all. Only Jesus could take the defeat of the cross and make it his victory over death, sin, and Satan. Only Jesus could take the shame of the cross and turn it into the glory of God in which we boast. Christians, we wear crosses. We have crosses in our church. Not there today. Okay, back there. Denise is like, of all weeks. <laughs> Sorry, Denise, that wasn't planned. Um, it's central now, right? Uh, and it would not make sense to glory in the electric chair. But we glory in the cross because it is through his death that this Jesus offers us life. If you would know this glory, if you'd want to be a part of the contract with this king, this king of glory, you must trust him by faith and trust that he came to die because of you and that he came to die for you. And you should do that today. If you don't know Christ, talk to the person who brought you. See me at the door. See Pat. 
Any of us would love to talk to you about how you can know this king, this king of glory who came to give you life through his death. And the evidence that he has for that, evidence that should be seen in the raising of Lazarus, of what he could do in the material world, that he can take someone that is dead and make them alive, to show you that he can do this even for you in the eternal world to come. Life everlasting. If you're here and you're already a Christian, to you, my faith family, you trust in this crucified Messiah, well, this death is so wonderful that it has impacts on how you currently live your life. So second point, what do you need to hear from Jesus? Second point, what do you need to hear from Jesus, his unexpected message? Here is the unexpected method, message. Jesus' dying for your salvation is also his design for your imitation. Jesus' dying for your salvation is his design also for your imitation. We are thinking about how his death should shape all of our lives, how we are to live cross-shaped lives. And you just need to hear this from Christ. Personal faith in a crucified Savior without fail will produce a cross-shaped life. Faith in a crucified Messiah will produce a cross-shaped life. What is true for our Lord is going to be true for his followers. It is not fitting that our Lord wore a thorn of crowns and that his followers should get a, 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 a crown of rosebuds. It just doesn't fit. The death of Jesus is at the heart of our discipleship. So my aim this morning has been to fire the lawyer in your head and to follow this crucified Messiah because all of us have a lawyer in our head that wants to make it all about moderation. You know, let's go back to those terms and conditions of following Jesus. Don't you just want to play it safe? That you shouldn't go all out for Jesus like Mary did last week and pouring out that ointment at his feet. You would be letting down the union of other Christians. I mean, pretty soon management would be demanding for everybody to follow Jesus at such a cost. But faith, family, my argument to you is fire the lawyer in your head and follow the crucified king because Jesus is dying for your salvation is also his design that he wants you to imitate. Bottom line, the death of Jesus is written into your contract, right? It's a copy and paste job. It does not fit for our king to have a crown of thorns and for us to have a crown of rosebuds. So a genuine, personal faith in a crucified Savior is going to produce in your life a cross-shaped life. Look at verses 25 through 26. Truths about him become truths about us. 25 through 26. Truths about him start in 24 when he says what? John 12, 24. He says about himself, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's all about him. But now it turns into everybody that wants to follow him. Verses 25 through 26. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There is no benefit in this man's death unless we 
copy it and we follow it and it is our own dying to self. To put it another way, it would be crazy of a follower of Jesus to not copy and paste the death clause into our own contract because that is what a follower does. We follow him. We are his disciples and he is a crucified king. So we live a crucified life. His death is his glory. So it also ought to be ours. It's the hour in which he's going to be glorified. His most triumphant moment is when he takes the cross. And so that should be seen in our life. So faith family, what role does the cross play in your life? What role does the cross play in your life? Far too many well-meaning Christians kind of encourage each other with terms and conditions. You know, I would speak out, but it would just be too risky. I might lose my job. As if paragraph 35, article 6 says, our client reserves the right not to speak if there's a reasonable likelihood of losing her job. Faith family, talk to Holly Tutko, member in our church, great example of someone lately choosing to cling to the cross in light of what her job was all about. Talk about how she did that. Consider how many would say, you know, I would serve, but I'm just so tired by the time I get to the weekend after all I did this week. You know, as if there is in our terms and conditions a maximum level of tiredness for Christians. You know, I would, I would love to forgive, but it is just too painful. As if it's just too painful and therefore I shouldn't, your lawyer would say, oh yeah, rest assured, that is too much. Your union rep would say, it is unreasonable for management to say that you must forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Strike! But faith family, the death of Jesus is not just for your salvation. It's for your imitation. The death of Jesus is at the heart of our discipleship. And I just want to encourage you, freedom ensues. In your bulletin, there's a quote from George, George Mueller. Open up your bulletin. Bottom right-hand side. I want you to see this. George Mueller said about how freeing it is to die to self. George Mueller ran an orphanage. George Mueller says this, There was a day when I died. Died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame, even my brethren or friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Here's his point. Being dead is freeing. Because once you're dead... Once you're a corpse, God can do with you whatever he wants. Have you ever seen a corpse protest? Don't put me there above the mantle. Don't move me there. Don't dress me in that. Don't have a long service talking about me. No. It's kind of the freeing attitude of what a Christian disciple is. I die to myself. He can use me however he wants because there was a day when Josh Owens died. And I no longer pray, save me. I pray, God, glorify your name. Here's where I think you could start. If this sounds too scary and you want to know, how do I actually start accepting the terms and conditions of being a disciple? 
would you stop praying just for your health, just for your wealth, just for your security and to be safe? You can pray for those things. But at the end of all those, would you pray the most risky prayer? Father, glorify your name. In my health, would you just, you know what I want, Lord, but would you glorify my name, your name? God, in my finances, you know what I want, but would you just glorify your name? In my security, in my traveling, in my decisions that I make, would you just glorify your name? I don't just make that up. It's, it's in the text. We're going to skip into a couple weeks from now, but go ahead and look at John 12, 27 through 28. This is what Jesus prays, and it's a prayer that all of us should follow. Look at what Christ says. Now is my soul troubled. It is hard to die. We are asking you to do a hard thing. It is right that you are troubled and that you are counting the cost. But this is what he says next. Father, what should I say? Save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Lord, I don't want to forgive, but would you glorify your name in this relationship? Father, I don't want to give. All my friends go on such cool vacations. Can you put that in my contract with you? Can save enough money to go on cool vacations. Father, glorify your name. How would it change our church for what we pray for if we risked it every week and prayed, Father, glorify your name. We think that's just for extremists. We think that's just for radical Christianity. I remember doing this when soccer was my God. I was playing at Liberty University. I saw my name on the list. I made the team. I thought it was the best moment of my life. I'm sitting there on the bench, and God's gotten a hold of my heart through his word. And I just remember saying, like, is it really going to all be about soccer? And I just remember, like, Galatians 2.20. I had memorized that verse by that point. I am crucified with Christ but yet, nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ in me. And the life I now live, I live by the power of God. But Lord, I don't know what's going to happen in the soccer thing, but glorify your name. Now, for me, it turned out to look like ministry full time. But I'm not saying that everyone that prays glorify your name ends up as a missionary or as a pastor. That's not it. We need you to glorify God with where you work, live, play, shop, eat vacation but we die to self we live to him and that is not radical christianity my friends that is just regular christianity if you have a christian version that doesn't have a cross it is on a different version of christianity it is just not christianity just want to be straight up with you this is the only contract available for you it is a cut and paste job this is what christ did this is what his followers do so i just want to apologize if anybody was here that's ever been sold a different version of Christianity, if following a crucified Messiah would make you healthy and wealthy and secure, that is a false Christianity that many are out there peddling. And I want to give you a name, Joyce Myers. She makes $95 million a year. She brags about her wealth, and she says, I quote, if you stay in your faith, you are going to get paid. I am living in my reward. I pray for her soul. That is not true. This is not the reward that you want. There is a greater reward. The Christ had more faith than she will ever have. 
that Jesus on this page did not live a life of health and wealth. He did not have a long and prosperous life. He died much younger than she has. And it is not because of any lack of faith on his part. The health and wealth gospel perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ. You should know this gospel. You should hear this from Jesus. And it is not that we are the grim marines, the toughest who can make it. I know that I probably want to preach that sermon. That like, you know, pull yourself by the bootstraps, let's do this, let's go charge that hill. But it is not about how high the expectations are. Christ has all of these hard truths with very precious promises. I want to end with this. Did you notice that for every hard thing Jesus says, he offers you a glorious promise? There are four hard things that he says and four glorious promises. Yes, this might be the longest message you've heard in a while. I am sorry. I just want to go through it. Is that okay? I, well, I, I say that and I'm not going to stop. So, uh, <laughs> the hard truth, number one, is we must die to self. Verse 24, the hard part is this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. That is hard. It is hard to die to self. But it is coupled with this glorious truth, 24b. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's a promise. This is what you worry about when you're thinking about dying to yourself. You worry about that lawyer in your head. And maybe it takes the form of a friend, a spouse, or a mom and dad. But those people come into your life well-meaning and say, Hey, make sure you review the terms and conditions. Don't waste your life. But this, your life is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Jesus' death was not unfruitful. Neither will yours be. Even if it means death to self, it will bear much fruit. Hard truth number two. You have to hate your life in this world. John 12, 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will stop there. That is hard. Right? you got to hate your life in this world. Now, we want to tell you really quickly what that does not mean. It does not mean hurt yourself. That's not what he's saying. It does not mean wallow in self-loathing. Jesus is just trying to get your attention with the word hate. Does he have it? Hate your life! Whoa, you're going to sit up, aren't you? He has your attention, and this is what it means. Lose your life so that you can replace your love for self with an endless focus on Jesus. We all are born naturally loving ourselves. We have an endless focus on what we want to do. And to hate your life or to lose it just means to replace that endless focus on you with an endless focus on Christ. And here's how Christ will compensate for how hard that truth is. Look at the glorious promise at 25b. He will keep it for eternal life. If you hate your life in this world, you will have eternal life in glory. Third hard truth. 26, embrace the same mission as Jesus. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Well, where is he going? The cross, the grave. It's going to be a hard truth. But here's how he compensates. The end of 26, and where I am, there will my servant be also. You get the companion and the closeness of Jesus when you cling to the cross. My friends, he carried the cross. You want to know of his whispers in your ear? You want to feel his kisses on your cheek? Carry the cross. 
what he holds. That, that's who he cares for the most. That's where you'll experience his love and his joy the most. Because he promises you in John 14, 3, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may also be. Final hard truth. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, well, what does it mean to serve? Oh, do his bidding. Be a waiter. What can I get you? Do you need more of this? Do you want more of that? Oh, you want me to go here for you? I'd be happy to. Be right back. Nobody wants to do that. It's a humble job. Taking his orders and waiting on him. That is hard. But see what happens. 26b, the Father will honor him. Man, the world values strength, prominence, ease, convenience, pleasure. But God says that he promises that he will honor all those that serve him. Faith family, your personal ambition in life should look a lot like the Apostle Paul. Paul says this in Philippians 3.8. Listen to Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes and depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Personal faith in a crucified Savior will look like a cross-shaped life. Is that what your life looks like as a Christian? And if you're just starting off, does it increasingly look like that? We want to help you with your first step, but we continue to grow and take on more of what our Savior looks like. What would it look like for you this week to put away the worldly pursuits and pursue Christ, take up your cross, and follow him? Perhaps the first step would be firing the lawyer, knowing who this Jesus really is. He's an unexpected Messiah. He came to die. Review the terms and conditions and realize that it's a copy and paste for all those that want to follow him. Take up your cross and follow me. His crucifixion was not just for your salvation. It was for your imitation. And what will be the result? Fruit. It bears much fruit. Eternal life, closeness to Jesus, and the honor of God. Is it worth it? Count the cost. So a moment of silence before we stand and sing two great hymns.